Good morning. We are continuing our series in the book of Daniel this morning. And as I uh, began to prepare this message, I started to wonder who would be in attendance this morning. For those who have been here, those who have not, how the word of God has been working in their lives. Maybe those who have heard this series, how they have encountered the book of Daniel. What God has been doing through the Spirit in the proclaimed word. You see, we here at Santa Cruz Baptist, we begin each service with a call to worship, which acknowledges the role of God and his sovereignty in getting us from our bed to our door and from our door to where we are now. You see, because we don't believe that we come here of our own power. We don't believe that we come here by accident. We believe that it is in God's knowledge and intention that we are where we are. That we're called here together to worship through song and through sermon. And so I wonder what God has been doing through this particular and peculiar yet timely text with each of us. You know, as I reflected on my own experience in Daniel on meditating on texts in order to preach them or to prepare our order of service. I found it helpful to frame each chapter in the broader narrative Daniel is telling. Because this sort of text is the kind of text where if you open your Bible randomly to it in hopes of hearing something from God, you think, well, I'm never doing that again. And you close your Bible. We need to understand what God is telling through the entire book in order to put this text, this chapter, in its place. And so, after all, we see that Daniel chapter 2 through 7, what we have just finished over a long period of time, is written in one language, as Drew reminded us. Which means 2 through 7 acts as a cohesive whole, one unit communicating some truth. And then chapters 1, along with 8 through 12, are written in a different language, acting as a unit in and of themselves. And so in order to understand what's taking place in Daniel 8, it's helpful for us to remind ourselves of what took place in 1 through 7 leading up to it. And so where have we been and what have we seen in the book of Daniel? Well, in the first half of Daniel, it's pretty clear that Daniel's chapter 1, 3, and 6 offer significant parallels and repetition of language. They give us remarkably similar events and stories. And so we see in them Each story is a story of faithfulness in the face of persecution. And as such, they offer us hope. They offer God's people hope living amongst an anti-God empire. Similarly, chapters 4 and 5 offer contrasting stories of how the rulers of this world interact with the people of God and how they rebel against God and even act beastly towards his people. And then chapters Two, through set, or two and seven presents the reader with prophetic visions in which a king and a leader encounter kingdoms rising and falling. And they encourage patience and they fortify their hearers with the truth of God's coming kingdom. That this reality that we experience Whatever is taking place in our world is not the end of the story. And so then we enter into chapters 8 through 12 as the author returns to the language of Hebrew. After six chapters, 
And in this section this morning, we start to see as he peeks into the future by God's wisdom and power in order to give us hope and in order to fortify us, in order to show us what needs to happen in order for God to establish his kingdom amongst the people. And so given that outline, we can acknowledge two things right away. We can see that the purpose of the book of Daniel is to give hope that motivates faithfulness to God. And we can see that the way in which Daniel does that, the message which he gives in order to accomplish that purpose, is that God is sovereign over the ins and outs of individual lives up and through the rise and fall of some of the world's greatest nations that history has ever seen. And so this morning we find ourselves in Daniel chapter 8, a vision which shows Daniel the coming of God's kingdom and the continued struggles of the Israelite people leading up to it. And even though nearly all, if not all, of the elements of this vision have been fulfilled well before today, I still believe it speaks to us. I believe it has a message for us. I believe it reminds us of important truths. But we need to read and seek carefully. For as Drew reminded us last week, these truths are buried in apocalyptic literature, which if to say nothing else about apocalyptic literature, we must say that it is a literature that carries important and relevant messages for our lives, but adorns them with perplexing and sometimes distracting imagery. And so I think it'll be helpful for us to simply focus as we look at this text on the answer of two questions. What in the world is happening in chapter 8? And why at the end of this vision is Daniel so sick if this vision is meant to give him hope? Thinking about these two questions will help us grapple with the complexity and perplexity of this text. As well, the answer to those questions will show us of how in this obscure Old Testament text we see Jesus foreshadowed and the gospel applied to us today. So... What is happening in Daniel chapter 8? Now, I wrestled actually with how to answer this question because the easiest, the most efficient way to answer it is to break from the structure of the text. Which generally when I give a sermon, one of the things I want to do is keep my message in line with how the text itself is structured. Moving from point to point as the text does. But in this text you get a vision and then you get more events, and then you get the interpretation of the vision coming back. And so I worry that the way in which I have structured my message this morning might lose some of the suspense of the text. As we walk through it, we might know already what Daniel has yet to encounter in terms of the truth. And so it's good for us to keep in mind how that would have impacted. But let's consider the basic images in order to understand what's happening here. The text begins by telling us the first thing of Daniel's location. He's in Susa, the citadel. This is important to recognize because it signals a shift in the text. In fact, it signals a shift in all of history. Because as the first verse of Daniel chapter 8 tells us, this took place in the reign, the third year of King Belshazzar. 
Now, if you have been with us for some time, you know that this king was actually assassinated back a few chapters ago. Which means that this vision is rewinding the tape and inserting into a previous place in the story. But as well, it tells us something else. You see, Susa was of little interest to Belshazzar. He didn't really care about it all that much. But it was extremely important to another king. King Cyrus of the Persians. You see, Cyrus, after he conquers the Babylonian Empire, he would set up his winter palace in Susa. Which means the reason Daniel is driven here in the vision is to prepare him for the coming of the next kingdom. The capital city of Babylon will matter little in the coming days for Daniel. But Susa will be the seat of power. The one who sits there will be the one on the throne. As an aside, we looked in Daniel chapter 5 and saw how Daniel, with seeming nonchalance, just turned away an offer from King Belshazzar to become the third most powerful person in the kingdom. Might this vision have had something to do with it? You can have the third place in the kingdom. I've seen how this kingdom ends. All pass. <laughs> This plays into the next symbol. In the text, a ram with some sort of lopsided horn situation comes up. And we're told this ram later in the text represents the Medo-Persia or the Medes and the Persians. With the Medes being the lower horn, they pre-existed or came up first before the Persians. And they were the weaker of the two parts of this dual empire. And so the Persians sort of hostile take over the Medes. They bring them in. Thus, the, per, or the median horn is situated lower on the head. And this Persian ram, we see, does basically whatever he wants, charging this way and that, unstoppable in his endeavors. Until a goat, curious image, with a conspicuous horn, which we are told in verse 21 is the nation and empire of Greece with its first and greatest king as its horn. Though Greece does not appear in the historical writings of the Bible, it's pretty clear that we can draw a historical connection from this horn, which again, as we've said before, in these visions, when you see horns, you think kings. In the ancient world, the horn was a symbol of power and authority. And so this goat with one solitary horn we can associate that horn with the king Alexander the Great. Also known as Alexander III of Macedonia, he was the first king to inherit the united Greek empire. And he quickly embarked on an unprecedented military campaign that has left him with a reputation which continues to this day as one of the greatest military strategists the world has ever seen. He rode at the forefront of his army into every single battle and didn't lose a single one. This comports with what we see in this brief vision of Daniel's. The goat's power is exceeding and great. The goat moves quickly, such that as Daniel sees the goat in the vision, it does not touch the ground. As well, history records that Daniel conquered the Persians, as is foretold in verses 7 and 8. Daniel records, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. 
Instead of it, there arose four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. This, too, matches Alexander's biography. He died young at age 32. If you don't think age 32 is young, then I'm very upset with you. It's a 33-year-old. But at the height of his power, he died. The text notes that the horn was broken when it was still strong. He left his kingdom then to be run by four generals who divided the kingdom into four parts. In the wake of this empire division, though, eventually would arise a little horn. We ought to be aware that historically, it's unclear if we have to equate this little horn with, as we saw in Daniel chapter 7, there is reference to a little horn, thus being two kings. The text doesn't require, them for, uh, doesn't require us to see them as the same king, but it does require us to see them as having the same character. And as Drew taught last week, the horn in Daniel 7 may be a stand-in for Revelation's Antichrist. And so, too, in this little horn, we see Antichrist-like characters, characteristics. Note in verse 10, It grew great even to the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Here the hosts of heaven and the stars are emblematic of the Israelite people, the Jewish people. Though the symbolism is rich in the Bible, if it's helpful to see one particular place that this symbol is clear, Genesis 15, 5. And he, speaking of God, brought him, speaking of Abraham, outside. And the Lord said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And from that point on, we see this parallel imagery where the stars can often represent the children of Israel, the children of Abraham. So thinking back to the image of the Antichrist we see in chapter 8, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given, to, given over to it, together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. We'll get to the him, the personal pronoun that this references, in a minute, but here it appears that the temple sacrifices, the burnt offerings, are stopped by this little horn, and that he disregards truth, which is likely a reference to the Torah, the holy book of the Jewish people. And so we see the, this antichrist-like flavor taking place in this text as he persecutes God's people, as he outlaws worship of Yahweh, and as he treats the word of God with contempt. This description, though not interpreted for Daniel, has a high level of scholarly agreement on what it is describing. You see, I don't think Daniel chapter 8 is describing some mere antichrist-like figure or antichrist-like behavior. But most scholars believe, and I am convinced, that this little horn is actually equated to a king from what is called the Seleucid dynasty. That's a dynasty rising up from one of the four horns that Daniel spoke about. Seleucid was one of Alexander's four generals. And this king from the Seleucid dynasty, his name was Antiochus IV, but he called himself Epiphanes, which translated to the English means God made manifest, or from the Latin, God incarnate. Antiochus gained power historically through political intrigue and usurpation. He was actually not originally in line for the throne, but was able to 
sneak his way in there using what we might say as riddles, or as chapter 8 refers to in verse 29, by cunning and by deceit he will prosper, and in his own mind he will become great. The history books, when they reference Antiochus, they nearly exclusively limit references to him to the brutal persecution he undertook against the Jewish people. He even went to the extent of desecrating the temple and erecting a statue of Zeus in Jerusalem. Antiochus's brutality is what would prompt what would become known as the Maccabean Revolt, in which the historical figure Judas Maccabeus, which means Judas the Hammer, so if you're a guerrilla warfare leader, that's a pretty sick title, Judas Maccabeus rose up to fight against the Greek powers in order to win back Israel's independence. Now, I said we would come back to the hymn of verse 11. Well, this hymn connects in the text to the title Prince of Hosts, which we see is similar to the title given in verse 25, the Prince of Princes. These titles refer to the same figure. And it is the him who is referred to in the phrase, the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. So what does that mean? The prince of hosts then, or the prince of princes, is somebody worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. This has to be a divine figure. And Antiochus IV outlaws worship to him and tries to dethrone him. And remember his nickname, he calls himself God made manifest, God incarnate. To state it simply, albeit somewhat anachronistically, Antiochus IV is putting himself on the level with Christ. He is claiming to be God in flesh, though his God would have been Zeus, the lightning bolt thrower. But what do we ultimately see? This text describes this little horn, and like Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus before him, We see that he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The specific implication, then, of Daniel chapter 8 is that this little horn will rise up and challenge the prince of princes, and in turn, the prince of princes will crush him. So what's happening in Daniel chapter 8? How do we answer this question? Well, Daniel is seeing a vision of four successive kingdoms, the kingdom of Persia, the kingdom of Alexander's Greece, the kingdom of the four horns divided Greece, and the kingdom of Antiochus IV's Greece. And each of these arise and pass away. And yet, God remains. God is steadfast and he is sovereign. He is in control and he is unwavering. He knew they were coming, and he lasts long after they are gone. His kingdom is unshakable, it is unhindered, and it's coming in advance by its rise and the fall of other world empires. Further, God communicates the need for patience, for faithful remnant that Daniel leads. He is told that this dream is for many days from now. No kidding. Historically, for Daniel, it will be 200 years until Alexander the Great takes over the Greek Empire and another 150 years until Antiochus inherits what Alexander had built. 
We're looking 200 and then 350 years into the future in these visions. And again, as we've pointed out on a number of occasions in this text in Daniel, these visions are so specific and so historically accurate that most non-Bible-believing scholars or most scholars who do not believe in prophecy or the truth of the scriptures will date this text well closer to the days of Jesus than the days of Daniel. Because the understanding or the belief, the presupposition in which they approach the Bible with is no one can have this kind of knowledge of these kind of events before they happen. That is impossible for many. Let's put that on hold for a second, though, and let's think about this. If we take the two points of this message together, Daniel's vision of these kingdoms, the unshakable nature of God's kingdom, and the need for faithfulness, what do we see here? What's the message for us in Daniel chapter 8? Well, I think it's remarkably similar to John 16.33. You see Jesus, many days after Daniel, speaking to his disciples, like God showing Daniel a vision, presents them with some content that's pretty hard to swallow. Jesus tells them of how they are not ready for the truths that he must give them. And he tells them of how he must leave them for a little while. And he tells them of the coming sorrow, but it will result in counterintuitive joy. And he tells them of the Father's love, and yet how they will be scattered. And wedding these truths together in their minds is difficult to comprehend, and the disciples understandably struggle with it. And then Jesus says this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's consider this sentence for a moment. I have said these things to you that you may have peace. Jesus' revelation to his disciples is no mere fortune-telling just for fun. It is intended for a purpose, and that intended purpose is to produce within themselves a sentiment, a feeling, a disposition of peace. Similarly, Daniel chapter 8 is no mere party trick of God's. He's not showing Daniel this just for kicks and giggles. This is a picture of God's grand plan for human history. And he wants Daniel to see, and he wants Daniel to record. He wants Daniel to understand that these events coming do not surprise God. They do not catch him unawares, but rather they are, in fact, the result of his sovereign decree. And they will ultimately lead to the establishment of an everlasting kingdom. But it's more than that. Look, look again at John 16.33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. This is not some worldly peace or superficial peace. It's broken and violated whenever hardship comes. I mean, quite frankly, that's just not peace at all, right? I mean, peace, well, peace is like courage and strength and other virtues. You know them by their testing. This is peace that for you, for those of you who call yourself disciples of Christ, it's peace for you personally, 
and it is found in him and in him alone. Good health, sufficient income, a thoughtful life plan being followed meticulously, none of these things will provide you peace. And each of these things can be taken from you like that. And that is why they don't provide peace. If those are the foundations of your life, they are easily shaken. No matter what securities, no matter what barriers, no matter what plans you erect around them, there is no defense strong enough to hold those and let them give you peace. Peace in Christ, though. Well, listen to the apostle, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Not on the things of earth, for you have died. And what? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Notice the security there. Your life is hidden in Christ. Where is Christ? At the right hand of God. Is that shakable? No. That is one of the points of Daniel chapter 8. Kingdoms will rise and fall, but the throne of God will stand. This is just an outworking, by the way, of the gospel itself. It's natural and it flows from it. Because we believe that by grace we have been saved and we have been given peace with God. We are saved from his wrath and the punishment of our sins. The one and only way to this peace is to hide your life in Christ, trusting him in his righteousness for your salvation. In a similar way, Daniel is being taught that reliance on human empires will fail. He must trust God, his kingdom, his coming king, this prince of princes. In a similar vein, this piece is practical. It does not hide, sweep under the rug, ignore the complexities and difficulties of life. No, Jesus tells us that we will have tribulation in this world. By implication, it is that tribulation for which we are given peace and by which tests our peace. This makes sense, as I said, because peace is one of those sorts of characteristics which is only shown to be true in testing. Like kindness, where you only know that you are kind when your kindness is challenged. Like love, when you only know that you are loved or that you do love when you are required to forgive or ask forgiveness. Like courage, which you cannot know you have until you have stood in the face of your fears. So too, peace is not meant for the calm waters of life, but when the cross currents of life, be they financial, vocational, familial, romantic, cultural, political, when they produce the dangerously choppy waters of life in which we all live. It is then and there that peace is tested and shown to be true. So the peace of Christ, embracing it, it comes only by the gospel. It enables us to see our trials as gospel tools to shape us and our character, to sanctify us, to form godliness in us. Thus, Milton Vincent, who the cohort will be discussing this evening, says, More than anything else I could ever do, the gospel enables me to embrace my tribulations in thereby positioning myself to gain the full benefit from them. 
For the gospel is the greatest permanent circumstance in which I live and move, and every hardship in my life is allowed by God only because it serves the gospel purposes in me. When I view my circumstances in this life, I realize that the gospel is not just one piece of good news that fits into my life somewhere among all the bad. I realize instead that the gospel makes a genuinely good news out of every other aspect of my life, including my severest trials. The good news about my trials is that God is forcing them to bow to his gospel purposes and do good unto me. By improving my character and making me more conformed to the image of Christ. One more thought on John 16, 33. So we are to take heart. To be encouraged because Jesus says, what? I have overcome the world. He has triumphed. He has conquered. He has won. And we shouldn't be surprised if you have been with us because we have looked at Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and now we have seen Daniel chapter 8, all of which give us different images and different angles on how God wins, on how God's prince conquers, on how the spirit of the world cannot stand before God, on how the nations, though they rage, will be defeated and destroyed. But if that is what Daniel 8 is getting at, then why on earth is Daniel so sick at the end of this thing? His response is not something that someone fortified by faith and hope and trust gets. So why is Daniel so sick? Well, this is a bit of speculation on my part, but as I have thought about this interesting question... I think that we can notice a few things in the text which draw out what is taking place in Daniel. And as we see them, we can allow them to correct and chasten and inform us. But in order to do so, we must see what Daniel would have seen clearly, but we, because of our historical ignorance, pass over far too quickly. We must cast ourselves into the story, stepping into Daniel's sandals and hearing it as he would have heard. You see, he's having this overwhelming vision of the future with images and animals brutally goring and stamp stomping each other, horns growing up out of things, breaking and more horns growing. This is an unsettling experience for Daniel. And in the midst of it, we note this in verses 11 through 14. Again, speaking of the little horn, it became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, speaking of the prince of the hosts. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgressions that make desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. 
We've already covered what these symbols mean, but I want to consider two unusual aspects of this text. The first is something of historically crucial significance. The sanctuary, the temple in Jerusalem, present in these verses. Historically, we know that that was destroyed in 587 BC, which is unusual given that Daniel is having this vision 37 years later. And yet he sees the temple standing. Consider the emotion of that vision. This temple is the apex of all Jewish life. Every national monument we have crammed into one is what this temple represents. The seven wonders of the world pale in comparison to this temple. In fact, nestled in the Old Testament is a little book called Lamentations, which records the destruction of Jerusalem as an act of God's wrath against the sins of Israel. And just to read one small excerpt, Lamentations 2, 5 through 7 records this. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid to waste his booth in the, like a garden. He laid in ruins his meeting place. That's God's meeting place, the temple. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar. He has disavowed his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised and clamor in the house of the Lord as the day of festival. It's hard for us to try and imagine this. Let me give us a shot, though, by throwing us not into his, Israel's history, but actually our nation's own history. Consider 1812, in which war broke out between the United States of America and the United Kingdom. President at the time, James Madison, sent a contingent of American soldiers to attack a British stronghold in Canada but the soldiers were able to fight off the American offensive and then invade the northern border. After 26 months of battle, the British troops reached the capital city of Washington, D.C. And on the 24th of August, 1814, they set it ablaze. The White House in the capital, burning as the president with guards fled the capital city. We often forget this and neglect this day in our nation's history, though it is one of our darkest. But now I want you to imagine President Madison fleeing the capital city as the Redcoats, which, remember who Madison is, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers before the Declaration of Independence. As he flees, the Redcoats, whom he saw fought off in the Revolutionary Army, take the capital. I want you to imagine what Madison must have felt and thought, how he feared for this thing called the American experiment. And now I want you to imagine that that night, August 24th, as smoke rises 
from the Capitol building. He puts his head down for a sleepless night, and he has a vision. A vision far into the future, into 2021, and he sees the United States Congress take its place in the Capitol building, preparing to go over the day's events. And he sees in this future that America still stands, the thing which he gave his life for, still erect, still strong. And courage wells up within him. But that doesn't do us justice yet. Now imagine that the date in which Madison is having this vision is January 6th, 2021. And as he sees the Vice President of the United States, as he sees the Congress take its place to do its job as the Constitution intended, he hears the chants, he hears the noises, he hears the crashes. Regardless of your political persuasion, I think we can see that Madison in that moment would have been utterly confused. He would not know of what to thought. We survive, we are strong, we move forward, we last. And yet we are still in turmoil. Yet we still must fight for what we see as right. The Constitution must be defended on that day as it was on 1812. Not sure what Madison would have felt if that scenario was real, but let's pull out of our Madisonian analogy and realize that that may be what you are feeling right now. That would have been the feeling right in the core of Daniel's stomach. As he sees the temple, which represented his people's connection with God, torn down and destroyed. As he sees smoke pour forth from it. As he had heard of Antiochus, and he sees the desecration, and he sees the temple doors closed and Zeus's statue erected outside, what would he have thought? How would he have struggled to understand God's grand plan to grapple with this? How the move from glory to infamy, from hope to despair. And to add insult to injury, we see in Daniel 8.12 the reason for this image. That the hosts are given over because of their transgression. What does that mean? Daniel is in exile as he sees this image, because of the sins of Israel, God has said, well then, you can go into the world. If you don't want to follow me, you can go follow false gods. And he lets Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia come and conquer and destroy. And Daniel sees and shepherds a faithful remnant in exile. And yet he hears... In the future, transgression will still reign. 
the people will still struggle. They, Daniel, will forget your faithfulness in exile, and when they are in the comfort with the temple rebuilt, they will sin and walk away from me again. And so Antiochus will come. Daniel is in exile because of idolatry and sin, and what he is seeing is a tacit confirmation that little will be learned from exile over a lasting period of time. At some point, for this vision to be true, the people of God will go back to Jerusalem, they will rebuild the temple, they will be in the glorious land again, and yet they will walk away from God again. They will turn their back on him. Everything Daniel fights for, he sees, will come true and then be forgotten again. And so he lays in bed for days, sick. But we should acknowledge that Daniel does not despair long. He does recover. And then he goes back to work. Consider the narrative structure of this vision, because I think that gives us a reason for why Daniel can get up a few days later and go about the king's business. I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the other one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings? He's asking a question. How long will the temple be desecrated? How long will it stand vacant and desolate? How long will the Lord's worship be neglected? An angel asked that to another angel. You want to know the peculiar thing, though? The second angel does not answer the angel, but turns and looks at Daniel. He said to me, not to the other angel. Not for merely Daniel overhearing this as some sort of piece of gossip, but, but rather for Daniel to be directed right at it. As if to say, Daniel, you remember this. 2,300 days. 2,300, why does that matter at all? In fact, why not say months or years, decades, centuries? Why 2,300 days? It is as if this angel, by God's revelation, wants Daniel to know God is in heaven and he is counting the days. This desecration, this desolation of worship will not go on longer than the Lord desires it to. The people will not be forgotten for long. God is in heaven counting the days. in spite of this vision being immensely and even physically unsettling. We then see the seed of hope that, God, that the sovereign God is enthroned. And this is actually still true. In fact, Jesus tightens it up a little bit. Mark 13, 20, or Mark 13 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. We can and should read this passage, as we have pointed out earlier in the series, in such a way that keeps us from trying to guess different things taking place in the end times, trying to put a particular date and year and day on when Christ will return. But we can and also should read this and understand that there is a day. More, there is an hour, and God is still in the business of counting them, waiting 
to the right one. He is sovereignly ruling, and he is counting the days and the hours, we could say the minutes and the seconds, waiting for the time in which he will send Christ back. So let's close by thinking about a few applications of this text. What should we do? First, we should note persecution. This has been a reality for the followers of God from the very beginning. The third chapter of the Bible, a serpent slithers into the garden and starts questioning, starts challenging, starts asking. That serpent is not a humble question asker. He's not investigating, trying to learn about the faith. He's looking for a chink in the armor. And from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to today, persecution will be a reality, in fact, an increasing one. If you look at the numbers of Christians persecuted across the world today, you would be startled and staggered given the fact that we sit here right now in safety. Many do not. But even with that, We should note that in spite of persecution, what Daniel is telling us is that we should be prepared to live a radically Jesus-centric, God-oriented, word-guided, spirit-dependent life. Now, that being said, I bet you would be startled to see how very ordinary that can look. Consider Daniel, or sorry, consider Jeremiah, a contemporary of Daniel, who writes to the exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. What is God's countercultural, challenging, extreme way of living in exile? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Santa Cruz Baptist, let us live the same. Let us gather and sing. Let us read and discuss the scriptures. Let us get married. Let us raise kids. Let us work hard at our jobs. Let us enjoy God and the life he has given us. And let us do so in our beautiful Californian Babylon. But let us never forget our heavenly home, from which we await our return as sojourners and exiles. And let us repent Daniel sees a vision of his people continuing to struggle and remain faithful to God. And let's remember that the Christian life is not one of perfection, but of repentance. Let us confess our sins to God and to one another, bringing what was in the dark into the light such that the Spirit can have control over it. Let us do so in the safety of loving community and let us seek holiness by bringing sin into the light where it has no power the light of the truth, the light of Christ and his gospel, which sets us free to follow and obey. And let us pray, remembering and acknowledging that the task laid out before us, the task of holiness, of godliness, of Christ-likeness, is not one that can be pursued under our own power and by our own strength. 
Let us pray to the Lord to do what he has promised, to finish the good work in us he has begun. As well, the task of evangelism like that is one not accomplished by ourselves. We can evangelize, we can share, we can witness, we can testify, we can speak, we can pray, we can do all of these things, but it is God who will give faith. So let us ask him in his sovereignty, the sort of sovereignty which searches out human hearts, penetrates their depths, and stretches over earthly kingdoms, let us ask him to give faith to the lost sheep. And with that, let us close in prayer now.